1 Samuel is in the first third of the Old Testament of the Bible. It's probably about 250 or 300 pages in from your Bible. And we're looking this morning at chapter 7. I'm actually going to begin our reading in verse 2 and take it through to the end of the chapter, verse 17. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 Samuel chapter 7. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on the day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the, land, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 
Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would meet with us this morning in Your Word. Lord, we ask that You would send Your Spirit, that by Your Spirit we might have our minds and our hearts illuminated, that Your Word would be more than words on a page, but that we would see it as Your will revealed to us, that we would see it as our very life. And so we ask this morning that we would learn more than simply the history of a period of Israel. But we would learn more about ourselves and our own hearts. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to learn about repentance and the mercy of God. And it is important for us to learn about repentance from the scriptures because repentance is something very unusual in our day. There is an element of repentance that can be encapsulated by saying, I'm sorry. And one of the things that I have noticed in our day and age, in our culture, is not only do we not know about repentance and not know how to repent, we don't even know how to say, I'm sorry. People walk up to us and they say, well, I'm sorry that you took it that way and it hurt your feelings. Or worse yet, I'm sorry you didn't understand my intentions in what I did. Now, I don't know about you, but that can't really be true repentance or even sorrow when in the midst of an apology, someone is insulting me, telling me I can't think and don't understand. But you see, the Bible tells us about repentance. It tells us repentance is something that is critical and a formulative part of the Christian life. And so this morning as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, I would like us to see three things. First, we see that there is repentance for God's mercy. That repentance precedes God's mercy. Secondly, we see Israel receiving God's mercy. And then third, we see Israel having a remembrance of God's mercy. Repentance for God's mercy, receiving God's mercy, and a remembrance of God's mercy. This is the story of 1 Samuel 7. As we open 1 Samuel 7, the first thing we cannot help but see is that Samuel is back on the scene. Now, some of you may have even forgotten about Samuel. It's been a few weeks since we've talked about him because we haven't seen him since chapter 3. Through all of chapters 4, 5, and 6, Samuel has been absent. And there is something very important we need to notice that Samuel is back before us. Because now that Samuel is here, he is a sign that God was at work in Israel. Because that's what Samuel was in chapter 3, wasn't he? He was a vehicle for God's grace to a people who were caught up in sin. And so it is again now. Israel needs new mercies from God after all of these incidents with the ark. And so Samuel is back. And it is interesting that the Bible 
focuses on what it wants us to pay attention to. You see, often we think the Bible should have certain information in it, or we wonder why it goes from point A to point B as it does. But you see, the Bible has a purpose revealing God's will for us. And so it does things like there is a very lengthy story through the first two chapters, two and a half chapters of 1 Samuel, describing Samuel's birth and early years. And then in very short order, Samuel is a teenager. It happens almost without us seeing it. And we see it again here, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Much text is spilled on only a few months and the activity of the ark. And now in one verse, 20 years have gone by. Now I point this out because it's easy for us to miss that, to assume that the contents of chapter 7 happen immediately after chapter 6, and they do not. There are two decades that go by. And so this should help us to understand the context of what is going on here. Now, what has happened during these 20 years? Well, apparently not much because the Bible doesn't tell us anything that's happening. Now, it seems that the Israelites are still under the thumb of the Philistines. The ark is returned, but it is being lodged in a a backwater place of Israel... There's been no shrine set up. The Philistines are still the dominant military power. Israel serves the Philistines. But now, at the end of verse 2, there's a change. Do you see it? It happens right after the 20 years. Our author tells us, All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There is a change in the people of Israel after 20 years of constancy in sin. Now they are lamenting after the Lord. And so Samuel comes before us. He would have been aware of what had happened. Better yet, Samuel would have been aware of why it happened. That God was on the move again in Israel. And this was what he was waiting for. If you could imagine year upon year, Samuel hoping, praying, waiting for Israel to realize that they needed to serve the Lord and honor and worship Him. And so after 20 years or so, Israel finally is showing signs of spiritual health. That's a long time. I imagine if if I came to your house on a pastoral visit and I said to you, you know, everything is going to work out fine in your family. After about two decades, your kids will turn out okay. Your marriage will be fine in about 20 or 25 years. That would be striking, wouldn't it? That's a difficult thing to wait for. That's a lot of time. And that's what's going on here. And that tells us how much Israel needed the Lord. And it tells us something else we must remember. It tells us how patient God is. Would we be patient for 20 years? No, we would not. But God is patient. So what does this change look like in Israel? What it looks like is Israel sorrowing after the Lord. They are mourning. They are grieving. And they are grieving for the right reason. They realize they have missed the Lord's care. 
They have been taught in what has been called the school of affliction for 20 years. They have been taught how much they need the Lord. Now, have you ever thought about that? Have you thought about at times how God may use affliction in your life to bring you closer to Him? Now, don't get me wrong. Your pastor does not go to bed at night and and pray, please, Lord, send affliction on me tomorrow so that I might be drawn closer to you. This is not our prayer, but this is the way the Lord works oftentimes. He sends us trials. He sends us tribulations. He sends us difficulties so that we realize how much we need Him. He strips away all of the things that hide us from Him. More than that, the Israelites were not just mourning their loss of the care of God, they were mourning the absence of the Lord Himself. That's what the text says. They lamented after the Lord. And this is the beginning of repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is, in its most basic form, a turning away from something and turning toward something else. That's actually what the word means. It means to turn around or to change one's mind followed by a change in a course of action. It's encapsulated in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 where he calls on the crowd to repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That is what repentance is. It is a turning back away from sin and turning to God that our sins might be forgiven. And so the very first aspect of repentance is we must realize that everything is not all right. We must understand that there is a need for a change. So what would repentance look like for you? What things in your life do you need to turn away from? What would the beginnings of repentance look like in your mind, in your action, in your life? This is the beginning of repentance, turning away from sin and toward God. But the Bible also teaches us that we cannot stop there. Now, sorrow for sin is important, and Israel had finally come around. But just sadness and sorrow is not sufficient for repentance. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you see the commonality in those two things? They're both grief or sadness. But one is godly and one is worldly. It is not enough to be sad. We must be sad for the right reasons and we must take action based upon our understanding of our lives. And so Samuel immediately challenges the Israelites. Look at verse 3. 
Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Now, public expressions of repentance are appropriate as long as they are not just done for show. What is really needed is not just a change of fortune for us. No, what Israel needs and what we need is to have our relationship with God be first. You see, what Samuel is challenging Israel to is to go back to the first commandment. The other nine will follow from that. But to go back first to, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And you see, this challenge is for Israel's good. You see, when we hear this word, if, and when we hear this challenge, we have come to a place in our culture that we believe that any time anyone challenges us, they are against us. They want bad things for us. And that is not what's happening here in 1 Samuel 7. Samuel is challenging Israel for their own good. He is saying, I am glad you're sorrowful. I'm glad you're lamenting. But don't stop there, brothers. If you really are repentant, then you will do this. You will put away these foreign gods and you will serve the Lord with all your heart only. And so Samuel begins by preaching an if. If your repentance is real... It has real consequences. It will have real actions to back it up. There is a wonderful section in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 15 that encourages us how we ought to think about repentance. It says, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, merely speaking of it. But it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins, particularly. We must take action that is related to our sin. We must forsake our sin as we see it, not merely to talk about it. And this is the second point of Samuel's sermon. After if comes then. And he says to them, if your repentance is real, then your first action is to put God first. And that means putting off foreign gods and going to the Lord. When you think about your own repentance, are you ready to take concrete steps to repent? Are you ready to make a list of things that you must forsake? And things that you must cultivate in your life. Not because those things have merit, but because they are an expression of a reality in your heart. You see, love for God does not remain hidden and locked away in our hearts. If we truly love the Lord and wish to serve Him, it bursts forth from our hearts and from our tongues. And it spills out into all of our life and into everyone who is around us. We cannot help but show that we love and serve the Lord. And so the third thing we see is Israel's response in verse 4. So, that is, so Israel did this, putting away the foreign gods. Now, this was not easy. I know as we sit here, 
in our church pews, in the air conditioning, we are thinking to ourselves, well, how hard could it be to take totem poles and get rid of them? How hard could it be to stop serving Baal or the Ashtoreth? I mean, that's not as hard as the things I would have to do if I repent, the things that I would have to give up, the things that I would have to change in my life. I'd love to only have to give up Baal. Again, I want to remind you of our context. How many years have gone by? Twenty. For twenty years, they have been serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths. This is not an easy thing to stop doing. It's an ingrained habit. And worse than that, it is an ingrained habit that is everywhere in the culture. How difficult is it to change your own life when you must be in complete opposition to what is going on in the world? There's a lot of pressure there, isn't there? That's what Israel would have experienced. And, and I have to tell you something else about this Worship of these false gods. I'll give it to you in a sanitized form. Worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreths was party time. It was fun. Everything that you think about in our party culture was a part of that worship. Getting drunk. Being loud. Doing lewd things. It was not something that people wanted to give up because it was hard or burdensome. No, it was designed to be enticing to the flesh. And so then, the question comes to you. What are you drawn to in our culture? What excuses do you make in your life not to give up? the things in the culture that are anti-God. You see, the people of Israel gathered together in verse 6 in a commitment to the Lord to shed off these foreign gods. And they acknowledged their sin before the Lord. And so the question is, are you ready today to commit to the Lord? Because you see, that has to be first even before God helps. And then we see the second thing that happens as Israel gathers together at Mitzvah. We see Israel receiving God's mercy, first and foremost by understanding that they are helpless before God and the world. And they start with this action of gathering together and pouring out water. Now, this is one of these occasions where... If I was not a preacher, perhaps I was a professor, I would regale you for a half an hour with all of the various theories about what it means that they poured out the water on mitzvah. But I think the bottom line here is, we don't know exactly what it means because if we were to know, God would tell us in his word. So there's no need to speculate here. But we do have something else that helps us to understand what Israel may be doing. And that is, they are fasting. And so if you think about it, if they've gathered together and they are refraining from food and they are pouring out water, at least one thing that they are saying is, is that God is more important to them than the very necessities of life. They could go without food. They could waste water. But they can't not have God. Think about that for a moment. 
There's nothing in this life that we need more than food and water. And yet Israel is acknowledging that they need God more than that. Without the Lord, they are saying, they cannot survive. And this is very different than their attitude in the earlier parts of this book. And so now what is happening is they have to put their money where their mouth is. God oversees circumstances so that Israel is immediately challenged to show the reality of their words and their profession. Look at verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So right away we see that this gathering draws the attention of the Philistines. And so what we have here is very interesting, is a parallel to what's happening in chapter 4. If, if you have the desire, put your thumb in chapter 7 and turn with your finger so you can see chapter 4. We see almost the exact same thing. Israel is all gathered together. And the Philistines then gather up their army to attack Israel. It's almost a replay. But there's one major difference. Do you remember what happened before that battle in chapter 4? The Ark of the Covenant came into the camp of Israel and they shouted with such a great shout. You could just imagine they were saying, we're going to win. We're going to take it to the Philistines now. They don't have a chance. And the text tells us that the Philistines were afraid. What's happening here? The Philistines gather together, and who is afraid? Israel. I want to remind you, Israel has the ark again. It's back. It's been back for 20 years. The reason they are afraid is not because they've lost their magic weapon in the ark. The reason they are afraid is because they have come to understand who they are and their need for God. You see, instead of having self-confidence, they have a God focus. Before, all Israel thought they needed was some religious magic power. They could handle things. All they needed was a little bit of help, and they could take care of it. Now, this is a challenge for you and for me, isn't it? Don't we have a temptation at times to view God as someone that we need simply to take us over the top. We'll do most of the heavy lifting, but we're not going to refuse a little help from God. But you see, Israel now knows they need the Lord, and they are afraid because they know that they are lost without Him. They understand that they are helpless. And so what they do is, they take out the only weapon that they have. Now, you see, sometimes when we come to a situation like this, we say to ourselves, you know, we're in great difficulties. The church seems under siege. The culture seems like it is ascendant over the church. It seems that every day there is a new story attacking Christians. Just this week, there was a story where a sitting senator said that if you believe what the Bible says about salvation in Christ. You are not what this country is about, and you should not be permitted to serve in the government. And we say to ourselves, we don't have an ark. 
if we only had an ark, then maybe we could get some action going on. We could wheel the ark into Congress and maybe the ark would blast some senators. Or at least it would convince them that they wouldn't want to get blasted and things would get done. But what I want you to see is, is that Israel tried that and they failed. And they only have one weapon here. And do you know what their weapon is? It's in verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God. The only weapon they had was prayer. You don't need an ark. You have that same weapon. This is the only weapon that will work to know that we are utterly helpless without the Lord, that we have nothing to buck us up, and that we must go to the Lord and seek Him and His strength. And we do that in prayer. Israel realized they had no resources. All they had was a sovereign God. But this was exactly what they needed. Do you remember Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2? How Hannah described the Lord as he who thunders, he who kills and makes alive, he who is sovereign and rules over everything. You see, now the Israelites are finally getting what Hannah knew. All they can do is cry out. They are so desperate, all they can do is pray. And in a typical wonderful, pithy quote. It seems every week I have to give you a good quote from Dale Ralph Davis. Dale says, Desperation is never in trouble when it calls on omnipotence. That's what desperate prayer is. It calls on the omnipotent God. When we understand we are helpless When God takes away all of our tangible support, we begin to see that we depend on Him. Are you committed to that kind of prayer today? That if God takes away all of your support, you know you have Him and you can cry out to Him. There is a second thing that happens here at Mitzvah. And that is a sacrifice in verse 9. Samuel takes a lamb and offers it up as a sacrifice. And we may ask ourselves, why the sacrifice now? Isn't, isn't praying enough? Israel was in the place where they needed to be. They were running away from sin. They're running toward God. And they realized that they were helpless and only God could save them. But what now we see is Israel knows they need to be back Right with God. Remember, there is still the matter of their sin. They are turning away from their sin, but there is still the fact that they have rebelled against God for decades. And so they had been brought to the point of abandoning sin, but they still had sinned. And the Bible never tells us that God ignores sin. Not once. It tells us that he forgives sin. Now, what is the basis of that forgiveness? The basis of that forgiveness is atonement. That is the story of the whole Bible. 
of the sacrifice for sin. The whole of the Old Testament is full of this. That is why we have all of the sacrifices described in great detail in the Old Testament. That's exactly what's happening here at Mitzpah. There is a sacrifice. And all of these sacrifices prefigure the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the ultimate atonement for sin. Nothing, no one can come to God without the blood of Christ. But the good news of the gospel is, anyone can come to God with and through the blood of Christ. So are you sorry for your sin? Do you know you need to be right with God? Do you know that you are helpless? Then the answer for you is Jesus. He was sacrificed so that you could be forgiven and be right with God. And then God begins to show Israel His power and His forgiveness in verses 10 and 11. Just when Israel seemed weakest, just when they seemed hopeless, then God breaks through and delivers. And this is why, beloved, we must never give up hope as Christians. No matter how dark the sky is, no matter how black the night is, no matter how much despair grips at us, we must never give up because it is precisely when we are unable that God delights in showing us He is able. We are not, but the Lord is. Then Samuel does something a bit odd. He takes a stone, in verse 12, and he sets it up. He sets it up as a remembrance of God's mercy. And he does this first and foremost to encourage Israel to trust in the Lord. Now, when he takes this stone and sets it up, this is something that Israel has done before. Those of you that have been with us in the evenings as we looked at the book of Joshua saw that when Israel went across the Jordan, when God parted the Jordan, they took the stones and set them up as a testimony, a witness to the power of God. And then you recall, at the end of that book, when they renewed their covenant with God, they had a stone that was a witness to them of their relationship with God. And so that's what this stone is. It is a witness and a testimony to what God has done. And there is something in its name, Ebenezer. In the Hebrew, it actually means a rock of help. Now, Samuel realizes this. That's that's why he gives it its name. But I want you to think back for a moment. Do you remember chapter 4, verse 1? Do you remember where the Israelites were first defeated? It was at Ebenezer. You see, there at that Ebenezer, all was lost through Israel's sin and their inability to trust God. But now here at this Ebenezer, all is restored through Israel's repentance and the trust that they have in God. Samuel sets up this stone as a reminder to Israel that they are to trust God and He will deliver. Now notice 
Samuel's phrase here in verse 12. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Now, the obvious and immediate meaning there is, right now at this place, God has helped us, till now. But I think it means much more than that. Samuel wants Israel to understand not just that God has helped them now, but that God has helped them when he led them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And that God has helped them when he parted the Red Sea and brought them. And God helped them when he fed them in the wilderness. And God helped them when they conquered the promised land. And God helped them when he restored them through the judges. Up until this point, all of this has been a help from God. But there's still more than that. Because you see, I think Samuel is also referring to these past 20-odd years. That God has helped them in the midst of their suffering. He has been with them. He has never forsaken them. He has helped them in the midst of their sufferings. And we have to understand that God does not just give us mercies. He also gives us chastisement as well to bring us to himself. You see, our temptation is to think of the Christian life like a roller coaster. When things are going well, we're on a high, and God is with us, and he loves us. And then when things take a drastic turn for the worse, we think that God has abandoned us, and he has left us, and we are on our own. And the reality is that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Sometimes he helps us through mercies. Sometimes he helps us through chastisement. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. You see, the Lord has been there for Israel in the past. And this encourages Israel to trust God in the present and in the future. And this is true for you as well, brothers and sisters. As you look back, don't just dwell on the past But understand that who we are in the present is the result of what God has done in the past. Remember the famous line from the hymn. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I am come. And I hope in the future, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Why do I hope I will arrive at my home? Because I have an Ebenezer to look at to see what God has done in my life. Do you look to the Lord for your future? Can you look back at your past and recount His deliverances to you? You see, this is practical theology. We do this once every month when we spread the Lord's table and celebrate communion. It is a reminder, it is an Ebenezer of the greatest thing that God has ever done for his people. It is a reminder that we look to the past and see that Jesus died for us. And because we know what he has done, we can trust him for today. And we can be confident for the future because we know this Jesus. Finally, I want you to notice the end of this chapter here how this remembrance also sustains the people of God in grace. 
The end of this chapter, verses 15 through 17, describes what Samuel did. He went and judged Israel all his days. Now, I'm going to take an image out of your minds on this. When the Bible says to us, Samuel judged, some of us cannot help but think of a very high bench and Samuel in a black robe, maybe even with one of those white curly wigs, and a big gavel, pronouncing judgments, guilty, not guilty. You owe him. You apologize to him. That's only a small part of what Samuel's doing. Because you see, the text tells us that what he did was he went around on a circuit. He went to Bethel, he went to Gilgal, he went to Mitzpah, and then he went back to Ramah. What he was doing was traveling around and bringing the word of God. He was reminding the people what God had done so that they would be sustained in the grace of God. He was encouraging them to continue in the Lord. What a blessing to know that God did not leave Israel on their own after he set things right. You see, that's a lie the devil wants you to believe. If you say, well, God has fixed things, he whispers, well, he did fix him, but he left you to screw him up again. He left you alone. It's up to you now. He may have set things right, but you got to keep it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God does not leave his people alone. That's contrary to his nature. And we already know that we are too weak to carry on by ourselves. And so the Lord sustains his people through his word. And we see this in Samuel. So in conclusion, you need to know that you are not alone here today. If you are sitting here, sorrowful for your sin, knowing you need God's mercy, you are not alone. You don't need to figure it out by yourself. God has given you his word to guide you. And he has given you fellow travelers including me, to come alongside and encourage you through his word. Receive the mercy of the Lord today in Jesus Christ. Call out to the Lord and say, I am helpless, but you, Lord, are mighty. Trust the Lord because he has delivered you and will deliver. The Lord will sustain you. He has made that promise in his word. And that promise is found in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are our only hope. And yet, Lord, you have given us the dearest promises that we have. So we come to you and long to serve you. Please help us, O Lord, to remember our own Ebenezer. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.